wish you could be here with us today. It's just not the same without you, but God's spirit is definitely here. The people who I have come and interview each week after the sermon, I've been telling them every week, just the spirit here is amazing. And even though it's a very, very small group, you can definitely feel just God's presence just among his people. He lives and dwells among the praises of his people, scripture says, amen. Well, we're back in Mark chapter 14, and as you turn there, look on the church app, uh, just a, a little story to set this up. I was back in West Virginia. This was where I grew up, my parents' house. We were visiting last July, and it was over the 4th of July. And on the 4th of July, my little hometown there, Ripley, they do an annual two-mile race. They call it the Firecracker Run. And me and uh, my two of my sons and then my brother and his uh, stepson were running, and then we just had a great time. Uh, I came in last of all those people I just named, but anyway, it was a great time. And after I finished, Michelle and I were walking through, it's right there at the courthouse square where the race ends, and we were walking, and, and a gentleman came up to us, and he reached out to me a Bible. And I said, oh man, thanks, but you know, um, save that for somebody else. I don't, you know, I don't need it. I'm actually a pastor. And literally, I'm not making this up, he looks at me, and he looks up and down me a couple times, and he says, you look like a sinner to me. And it, it definitely caught me off guard, but I'm not going to tell you how the story ended yet. I'm going to tell you after we look at the scripture and talk for a few minutes. So Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at Peter's failure, and actually, we're not going to get to from failure to feeding, we're not going to get to the feeding side, but in your follow-up questions, which can be used to your K-group, personal study, uh, it, it alludes to this passage, and I encourage you to go to this passage where the feeding episode takes place, where Jesus said, feed my sheep, Peter, and really that ties in well to this. So Peter, from utter failure to feeding. And so we're in Mark 14, 66 through 72. I'm going to read that for you. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were... The, with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know not understand, or understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, uh, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that aligns us to you that aligns up us to truth, and you're the truth. And God, there are so many competing voices out there that tell us to live our lives by so many different standards, but your standard is the only true standard that pleases you, and we're able to fulfill our purpose in life, which is to glorify you. And God, I pray that today, as we go to your word, that the people who are listening and watching today will align their lives to you and to your word, in Jesus' name, amen. 
ask you what seems like a pretty easy question to answer. The question is, who are you? Who are you? I'm, I'm talking about what does it mean to be you? What does it mean to be who you are? And that question, like I said, may seem silly, but probably if you think about it, over various points of your life, you would have answered this question differently. You would have responded differently because over our lives, the different experiences we have, the different relationships we have, the culture, the media, all these things that we encounter in the world kind of keep redefining who we are to ourselves. Who are we, you know, and what makes me me? And during the course of your life when you've experienced great loss or you've experienced incredible frustration, a loss of a job, maybe you've gone through a divorce, maybe even the times we're in now where you're dealing with the scare and the anxiety of, is my health going to hold up in this? Am I going to get coronavirus? You know, as you experience these things or the effect of aging, you begin to contemplate your identity and, and what makes me me and what's, what am I changing? What is this about? And here's what I want to challenge us to do today, because we can base our identity on the ever-moving and ever-changing world that we live in, or we could base it upon what God says about us and the way that God sees us. And that's critically important. And today, as we look at Peter, how important it is to see that a guy who was Jesus' right-hand man, I mean, literally, this guy was of the inner circle of Jesus. He's named throughout Scripture as Peter, a disciple of Jesus. And anytime Peter's name is mentioned in a list of disciples, Peter is always the first guy mentioned. He's the leader. He's the spokesperson. In fact, his identity is so tied into Jesus that Jesus literally changes his name, probably more like a nickname, but he takes it and he says, you're no longer Simon, but you're, you're Peter. You're, you're a rock. That's what Peter meant. It means a rock. Peter, you're a rock. And so you see that everything about Peter was defined by who he was in Jesus, supposedly. But in the passage today, we see this rock completely crumble. I mean, this is a disaster what happens. So let me catch you up to where we've been the last few weeks as we launch into this passage. You'll look at it for a second. So Jesus is under arrest, and he's standing before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. The Sanhedrin being kind of like the supreme court of that day who could rule in religious matters mostly, some civil matters, but they were not allowed to put anyone to death. And so you'll see as this trial continues, there's going to be several phases of it. But right now he's before the high priest in the Sanhedrin. And he's in uh, this area, probably the high priest's home. And Peter has followed from a distance. And he's in the courtyard. And he's sitting with the guards by the fire warming himself. And then verse 66 says that as Peter was below in the courtyard, Jesus is more than likely on a second story uh, in a big room where a lot of people are gathering and more and more are coming. And he's down below, and one of the servant girls of the high priest come, and seeing him warming, she says to him, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. You're, you were with him. But Peter denies it. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand what you're talking about. He flatly denies being associated with Jesus. And so the high priest, actually, we learn from John's account has questioned Jesus already about his disciples. He's point blank asked Jesus about his disciples. So Peter knows this. He's hearing this going on. He knows that more than likely, not only is he going to be detained and questioned if the high priest finds out he's out there, 
But he, in the garden, we saw this a couple weeks ago, he cut the guy's ear off, the servant of the high priest, so more than likely he's going to be even in greater trouble. And he had good reason to suspect that he was in danger of imprisonment or even death at this point. And so he responds to the servant girl. He he's literally says, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I'm clueless what you're saying. And so he knows he's under heat. He's getting heat. He's under pressure. And so he makes his way to, into the gateway, and he hears the rooster crow. So uh, Peter, under no circumstances will I ever deny you, Jesus, Peter. Peter, who says, I'm going to die with you, Jesus. That Peter here is now embarrassed and distanced himself over the questions of a lowly servant girl. And so he, he's, he's moving out, he moves into this corridor, and there we have the first rooster crow. And we know that Peter probably isn't alert, he's under pressure, there's a lot going on, he's probably oblivious to the fact that this happened. It's also probably, if you follow the traditional timeline for the Passion Week, it's probably 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning, early, early Friday morning, the day of the crucifixion. And so he's walking away, and then verse 69 says, And the servant girl saw him, she began to say again to the people around, This man, he, he is one of them. So she recognizes him, she sees him, she knows, she's pretty certain. She points him out to the bystanders and says, This is, this is one. And so Peter denies Jesus again. He, he just denies, verse 70, flatly denies. Peter here had a chance to redeem himself. We could probably chalk up the first failure, right, to I'm being caught off guard, I'm in the situation, I wasn't expected to be confronted, I had no time to really think about it, prepare for it, but this time he has no excuse. I mean, he, he, he just falls, he just fails completely. And what I love about the gospel, what I love about Peter is the fact that we've talked about this over the last year, is that more than likely the gospel of Mark is Peter's sermons they're actually his transcripts of his sermons that Mark recorded, took down. And so can you imagine Peter as he's preaching these sermons in just brutal honesty that he's displaying that, yes, I was there following from a distance, and yes, I denied him not just once, not only did I deny him twice, but I denied Jesus three times. Man, I failed. I felt the, the, the guy who I love so much, Jesus who I committed my life to follow and to know and to be with and to model after, this person I disowned. I was disloyal. I fell utterly. What humility, but what redemption. The fact that Peter is now preaching these sermons about his own failure. And so Peter, he stays away from the house. He, he's, he's been confronted. He wants to move away, but he doesn't want to leave completely. He wants to know what happens to Jesus. In verse 70, the second part of verse 70, and after a, a, a little while, the bystanders say to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you are Galilean. So his accent has given him away. They recognize that he's from um, Galilee, where Jesus is from, and they also recognize one guy, John tells us, recognizes him from the garden. So they know, I mean, there's no place to hide here. His plan to come in and blend in and just be anonymous and just kind of take in what was going on with Jesus, that plan fails. And he's lying and he's trying to deny. So what can he do? What possibly can he do to convince them that they're mistaken about his identity? And so the third time he denies, verse 71, he began to evoke a, invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. 
You see, the first two times he denies, he denies association with Jesus. This time, he denies any knowledge of him whatsoever. That I don't even know this guy. He doesn't even mention Jesus' name. He just, this guy. I don't know this man of whom you speak. And so here he is. Jesus called him the rock, and the rock is just crushed to pieces. And he, he's in this desperate mode to save himself. And all he can do is resort to the most drastic affirmation of truth that he can think of. He basically, I mean, he calls down a curse from God upon himself, the wrath of God upon himself. He says, I don't know him. This would be in our vernacular. He, he would say, I swear to God I don't know him. And, and God strike me dead if I'm lying. That's basically what he's saying here. He's invoking God's wrath. He's in, on himself. He's swearing by God that he doesn't know Jesus. How sad. In verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. This one called his attention. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to, to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It's interesting as we look at the other accounts of the gospel and we get different perspectives and some different interaction that happened. Luke tells us that Jesus literally looked and saw Peter at this moment. He looks down from the second story and he catches Peter's eyes. Their eyes meet and the rooster crows. Imagine the sorrow that Peter felt at this moment. He loved Jesus. He truly loved Jesus. And he's overwhelmed in this moment as Jesus looks at him and as the rooster crows. So let's think about Peter for a second. Who is he? Who is Peter? Is he the man who gave up his livelihood in order to follow Jesus? Is Peter the one who spent so much time with Jesus as one of his three disciples that Jesus even renamed him and, and, and gave him a new identity? Peter who gave up everything to follow Jesus. Peter of the upper room who declares his loyalty to, to Jesus. Or the Peter who's asleep in the garden at the most critical time when he needed to be praying for Jesus and praying for himself. Or the Peter who showed some courage in the garden and sliced the guy's ear off to defend Jesus. Or the Peter who wanted to follow and followed from a distance. Or the Peter we find here who crashed and burned completely, denies Jesus. You know, the thing is, Peter was all of this. He was leader. He was loyal. He was loving. He was bold. He was spiritually distracted. He was quick-tongued. And he was very weak in his sins. And in the moment of being very weak in his sins, he was a failure, he was a liar, and he was a traitor. That night, Peter discovered how much he depended upon Jesus for his strength. Because Peter was not strong. That night he realized that the only spiritual power that he had came from Jesus. And you know what else he learned that night? He learned how strong Satan was, the appeal of the flesh, the appeal of the world. Jesus told Peter that, that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. And he experienced that firsthand. And just like Peter, apart from Jesus, we could do nothing. You know, it's so tempting for us to argue for our own righteousness or 
be tempted to make excuses for our sins and when we don't follow Jesus the way that we should. And it's so easy to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on our biblical knowledge. I know a lot about the Bible. I've been in church for a long time. I know the stuff. And it's so easy to take our eyes off Jesus and just put them on our profession of faith. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. You know, I've got that relationship right so I can pretty much live life the way that I want. And we take our eyes off Jesus and maybe we don't abandon him completely. But we basically rely upon our own strength to try to live the Christian life. Jesus said in John 15, I think the, the most critical passage to understand what living in Christ and, and being connected to Christ is all about. In verse 5 and 6, Jesus told the disciples, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Did you hear what Jesus said? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, Jesus says, you're a mess. Apart from Jesus, I'm a mess. Apart from Jesus, you're a mess. And here's the thing, our, our failure may not look like Peter's failure. It may not be a overt calling down God's wrath and denying that you know Jesus. It may not be like a, a super bad sin that you commit or banning your family or having an affair or this or that, the things we hold up as like the worst sins. But you see what Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. So you cannot do anything for the glory of God apart from Jesus. You cannot do anything for the kingdom of God and for his purposes apart from Jesus. Apart from him, your life does not fulfill its purpose. Apart from Jesus, your life is being wasted. And so look what Peter, how he responded at this moment. He breaks down because he failed Jesus. And look at verse 72 again. He broke down and he wept. He broke down and he wept. You know, if there's somebody in Scripture with whom you would expect Jesus to turn his back on, it would be Peter. How could he deny Jesus? Even after Jesus had warned him specifically, Peter, you're going to do this, but he still did it. It seems like it would be unforgivable what Peter did. But no. Peter wept. Peter realized that he'd failed. He was broken. He was contrite. But his denial is a shockingly reminder to us. It's a concrete picture of why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because it shows us that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus were necessary. Because why? We're all like Peter. We all deny Jesus. We deny him by our lips sometimes. We deny him by our actions a lot of times. And we deny him very, very often by not living for him and living for ourselves instead. And we live our lives by making life a story of us rather than the story of God. You know, Galatians 2.20, which I quote all the time, I've been crucified with Christ. Put your name here. I, John. John no longer lives. But Christ lives in John. The life that John lives in the body 
He lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. You see, if you're in Christ, then your life has ceased to exist the way that you knew it before salvation. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life now is for something so much bigger than just writing your story. It's about being a part of God's story. And as I said, the failures that we commit oftentimes don't pale in comparison, humanly speaking, to Peter's failure. But we're not living for God's glory. We're choosing our own purposes and our own reason for living. And most Christians don't have a gospel perspective on who they are and the life they've been called to live. And most of us don't abide in Jesus. And it's no wonder if we're not abiding in Christ that we don't fulfill our purpose, that we do deny and we fall so much. In fact, I think our independent spirit measured by our, get this, our prayerlessness and our lack of desire for God's word reveals spiritual pride. Keep that on the screen. Let me read it one more time. Our independent spirit measured by our prayerlessness and our lack of desire for God's word reveals our spiritual pride. Basically, when we live our lives by saying, I don't really need to seek God in prayer. I don't really need his word as my daily bread. We're saying practically, I can live my life apart from you, Jesus. I don't need to abide in Christ. I can do this on my own power. And time and again, we'll find our, our, ourselves in situations, just like Peter, where we deny Jesus by the way that we live our lives. So think about it. This, this is about as tangible as you can get today. Your prayer life, my prayer life, my hunger and desire for the word. What does that say about our lives? Does it say that we're abiding? Or does it say that we're out running on our own strength, defining who we are by ourselves? You see, back in West Virginia when I was approached and the guy said, he looked like a sinner to me, well, I felt in my heart that he was definitely meaning that very condescendingly. And my flesh, trust me, if you know me, you know my flesh was ready to lash out at this guy. At that moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I looked at him and I said, you know, you're right. You know, I am a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I said, aren't we all? Because the truth is, we have this dual identity. That as long as we're on this earth, we have this humanness that we have to constantly battle. This desire to live life on our, our terms, to do life our way, and not do life according to what God says. Here's how you should live life. Be holy as I am holy. Live for me. Make me known. For my, my name and my renown, that should be the desire of your soul. Not your life for you. And so grace isn't more than just a pardon that we get at salvation. God's grace is, is the power that we have to live this life, this humility that we experience to say, I am a sinner, and apart from you, Jesus, I could do nothing. I, I need you every hour. I need you every second of every day if I'm going to live this life for you. As you know, some of you know that I've been inviting people to join me on stage 
who are part of our church family. So I ask the, the two that are helping me today, Keenan and Deborah, to come on up here. But I want to encourage you. God is faithful. Even when we fail, God is faithful. God will complete what he started within us, Scripture says. And I love the story of Peter because it shows that redemption is more than possible. It, it, Jesus is eager, as he was with Peter, to forgive us and to restore us and even use us for ministry. So come on over here, guys. You know, the Word is something that is, is so essential. We, we have to have the Word. But one thing that we are missing is because we need the Word in community. And this is um, kind of a substitute for community at this moment because we need you to hear from God. Because we hear from community a lot more than we even think we do sometimes because we walk into K-Group, we're talking, having discussions. But even when we walk in on Sunday morning, we're having these little sanctification discussions where, you know, hey, Keenan, how was your time in the Word today? And, and Deborah, how are you doing? How are, you know, how are things going? And you have these little conversations that strengthen us in the Spirit. And so I'm glad we could kind of reproduce this in a, in a small way, in a small scale. So, Keenan, let me start with you. What is the role of the Word of God in keeping us focused on God's story rather than our own story? I think about um, an illustration that many pastors use. They talk about, um, you know, if you want to hear God speak, read your word. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read your word out loud. And um, even though you know, we chuckle and laugh at that, I think it's so true, um, clinging on to God's word. Because there was a time in my life where um, when I was an unbeliever, I did not. And the Bible to me was just a, a book on a shelf, so to speak. Um, it's kind of like a, maybe a history book. And it collected a lot of dust. Um, but when I became a believer, um, I cling to it. And um, like a fish needs water, like we need air to breathe. And I knew that it contained, it was a blueprint um, and contained answers that I needed in order, you know, to spiritually thrive. And I saw so many um, friends that, um, you know, I guess years on into um, being saved where um, they would come and they had these, these struggles, but they didn't read their Bibles. And that's one of the first questions I ask them, you know, are, are you reading your word? And um, because that, obviously, there's a lot of promises and hope that, um, that come with that and, and help that restoration. But, um, you know, one thing I, I get when I read the word is I know there's a God out there, and I'm definitely not him, you know. So. Yeah, it humbles you, doesn't it? Well, you know, uh, Deborah, just thinking about the anxieties and the fears that, you know, we all battle with, and how that straying away from God um, can just cause that to just go rampant. Talk to me a little bit about how that, how that when you put your eyes upon your own story versus God's, how that manifests itself in, in your life, and then how is God's Word, does it bring you back to the truth? Well, I have, sometimes I admit I, I forget that God is in total control, and uh, I just need to let go, and let him have it and pray that he, you know, will lead me in the direction I need to go. Um, I tend to uh, worry and have a lot of anxiety, uh, but the truth is worrying is not going to change anything. And uh, he's proven to us time and time again that he's going to take care of us. And there's no need to worry about the future. He's going to provide for us. He always has and he always will. 
What's the role of the Word of God in, in that? I mean, how has God been your strength? I know you've went through so much the last couple years, losing a spouse, losing a grandchild. Um, you know, how has the Word strengthened you during those times? Well, there were times that, I mean, it just felt like things were falling apart. And, um, you know, I, I questioned God's plan and, you know, questioned His, his love for me. And... Um, on those days when it was hard to even put one foot in front of the other, I knew I had no place to go except to God and, and the truth in his word. And uh, there are several scriptures that, you know, that meant a lot to me during these past couple of years, and I'd like to share those. Absolutely. And we were talking beforehand just about how that God's word just anchors us. And, and not just anchors us, but it changes even changes our thinking, changes our process of just seeing the world. And that's what I, you know, as Deborah looks these scriptures up, I just want her to explain how this radically changes her life. Uh, the first is Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Mm. Um, we have no strength without God's strength. And um, it was God's strength that helped me during those hard times. And continues. I'm and sure because the hard times don't totally go away. You know, one thing about interesting about the verse is the fact that most of the Old Testament, uh, the, the commands come with warnings. And I think we read that in the devotion book we're doing together. Um, some people who have signed up for the devotion on anxiety and worry. But this one comes with God's presence, not a warning. It says, I'll be with you. And so fear not, I'll be with you. Well, that's amazing. Comforting. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. What's the other verse that you had? Um, this is John 16:33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. world. Um, God's peace is like no other, and um, he's done the work for us so we can, we can partake of that peace mm. in hard times. Well, you've definitely been an inspiration to your church family. Um, and I know that just because you believe God's promises doesn't mean that you don't have days and times of struggle. We all do. But that's where our faith grows more and more. And we just go back to, God, I, I believe your truth. I trust your truth to be true, not just um, universally, but for me personally. And then what's the role of repentance in all this, the role of the word and repentance? What does that look like? So while you were speaking in your sermon, I was thinking um, – my wife, Aubrey, and I were watched on The Passion of the Christ on Good Friday. And there's the scene where Peter um, hears the, um, the crow, crow for the second timer. And he's instantly, you know, convicted. And um, it kind of, it made me think of, you know, to me the model of repentance. Um, Psalms 51, um, where David's confronted by Nathan um, for committing adultery. Um, and again, with Bathsheba and putting her husband on the front lines, and his first, his first words are, have mercy on me, O God. And if I, could, if I could think of anything that Peter's doing right there, he's, have mercy on me, O God, right now. And I think about that as soon as, um, as, as I deal with sin, I feel distant from God. And, um, and there's a place where I feel like, like I'm, I guess, a fish out of water. And I'm like, God, I know I need you. Um, and I, I have to get to that point where it's like, have mercy on me, O God. And um, our K group, um, we're going through Second Corinthians, just finished it up, and 
2 Corinthians 7, it talks about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And um, I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, you know, we talked about the differences between them. And I think the godly sorrow is, um, is right there um, where Peter and David were in, in Psalm 51. And then um, and the worldly sorrow is the, oh, man, I got caught. You know, and, um, and it was great um, discussing that with, with our group. But, um, you know, for me personally, I find myself um, praying those prayers of, of repentance, the same prayers that David um, prayed, you know, have mercy on me, create me a clean heart, you know, restore me the joy of your salvation, Lord. And, um, and it's the word which shows me that, which shows me what true repentance looks like. And um, I think it's pretty awesome. That's great. And, you know, Jesus always comes for his children. He, he doesn't forsake his children. And just like Peter, Jesus will come for Peter, and he comes for all of us. And that's where I think, like you said, the repentance comes in. Just It's just, I need your grace today. Uh, apart from you, I will live life for myself. But with your grace, not just a, a grace that pardoned me at salvation, gave me salvation, but a grace that gives me the power to live the life that God's called me to live. And it has to be not just a one-time thing. It's a constant, yeah, continual thing that goes on. Well, let's pray. And then we'll have the band um, close us out in one more song. Father God, we thank you so much for this incredible book that you gave us called The Word of God, the living and breathing Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through our selfishness. It cuts through our hard heart. It cuts through our sin. And it exposes your children to Jesus Christ and our need for the cross. And God, for those who are so apathetic that maybe they are not even sure whether they even know you anymore, God, today may they wake up and, and really examine themselves and see if they're in the faith. And for those who have strayed away or those who know they're just living life on their own agenda page right now, God, I pray that your word will convict and move and they will experience that godly sorrow that leads us to repentance, that godly sorrow that uh, humbles us and allows those things to be part of, of the story that glorifies you and to lift you up and make you known. And God, during this time, of our, our social connections have definitely uh, decreased. God, I pray you'll give us avenues and opportunities to minister to our family through unique opportunities, through technology and other ways in order to impact so we don't waste this quarantine time. And God, I pray that you will be glorified in Grace Church and for all those who are listening today and watching today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.